Today we'll be reading through John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. And you know that and you know the way where I am going. And then Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know me. You do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know him, Philip? Know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How could you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to the Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 14. We're looking at those first 14 verses of that chapter. Those were the verses that were just read. Also grab your sermon notes out. Believe is our current teaching series, The Gospel According to John, working our way through that book. And the title of this weekend's message is, Let Not Your Hearts Be Troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Take a look at your sermon notes there. Chapter 14, John chapter 14 starts with Jesus saying, Let not your hearts be troubled. And then he pretty much ends the chapter, close to the end of the chapter, verse 27, by saying, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You, could, you would probably agree with me, there's a lot of things in this world, in our lives, that would trouble our hearts. You agree with that? Yeah, a lot of troubling things, troubling times, and it can cause some trouble within our own lives. In fact, what Jesus is making very clear to his disciples, you will be facing trouble. He's going to let them know about that in John chapter 1633, in this world you will have tribulation. That also applies to us. In this world you will have trouble. He promised us that. But he's saying, though you're going to have trouble, you don't have to be troubled in troubling times. That's what he's trying to get across to them. Now, I looked at this, uh, up this word troubled, and the New Testament was written in the Koine Greek, everyday Greek language, and so I looked that word up, trouble, it's on your notes there. The Greek there means agitated, disturbed, restless, tossed back and forth. It is the picture of a storm-tossed sea. You ever feel like that? I, I certainly do from time to time. 
And in fact, uh, as I was thinking about this, so what does that look like in our life? Well, as it relates to the past, present, and future, if you are bitter over the past, haven't dealt with some of that junk from the past, it takes a while sometimes to work through that, but if you're bitter over the past, if you're complaining and agitated about the present, or worried and anxious about the future, then welcome to the party, you have a troubled heart. Yeah, you, you, you've got a troubled heart. You, you, there's some stuff that you need to work through. And though there's a lot of troubling times around us, we all are going to face it. The Bible promises us that. But we don't need to be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. It's like he's putting that on us, isn't he? Like, hey, this is on you. Don't let your hearts be troubled. This is on you. Now, why would he say that? Because he's about to give them resources, gifts. And if we take seriously the gifts that he's going to give them and he also gives to us, then there's no reason why we should ever have troubled hearts. So we've got to take a look at these gifts that he's going to give us. In fact, I was curious about this whole idea of anxiety, anxiety disorders, so I looked up the Anxiety Depression Association of America, and this is what they say, anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the U.S., affecting 40 million adults in the United States age 18 and older. So that doesn't include those below 18, it doesn't include those that they don't know about who are medicating that anxiety in some form or fashion or denying it. So that's a big problem. What we're talking about this morning is a, big, is a big problem. So how to deal with a troubled heart. Here's the context. On the night before Jesus dies, this is where we are in the storyline, he prepares his disciples for what they're about to face. So chapters 13 all the way to 17, we get a chance to look into the very heart of our Savior, the very, his tender words uh, to his disciples to prepare them for the firestorm that awaits them. And he's going to be uh, arrested, hanging on the cross really soon, and his disciples will scatter like a bunch of rats jumping off of a sinking ship. And, but what's going to happen is after the resurrection, they're going to regroup, take the gospel to the world, and as they head out on this incredible quest, they will face torture and martyrdom. So I'm just curious here, show of hands, how many have faced torture and martyrdom here lately? Anybody, show of hands, okay. Okay, you guys are lying. Okay. I know you guys. Okay, no, none of us. And chances are pretty good we probably won't. And yet these guys are facing torture and martyrdom. And so if, if this helps for them, which it does, then it certainly should work for us. Would you agree? So what he's going to tell them certainly works for them because all of them die from torture and martyrdom. All except for one. Anybody know who the one is? John, the one who's writing this book. So he later on goes, writes three letters, first, second, third John, just packed full of the love of God, love for one another. And then they try to kill this guy by putting him in a, a, a pot of hot oil by boiling him to death. How creative. That's sick. They can't kill him. 
So they say, well, we don't know what we're going to do because God was not finished with him yet. So they exile him out on the island of Patmos where he writes the big book, the apocalyptic book, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Powerful because God wasn't finished with him yet. So, so these guys are facing torture, martyrdom. We're going to be facing much less unless we go to a third world country and become missionaries or any number of things like that, which they to this day are facing that. But if it works for them, certainly it will work for us. So this is very practical. So be strong and courageous in, and these are the gifts for the incredible quest Jesus is sending them on, also sending us on, be strong and courageous in hope, salvation, knowing God, prayer. Next weekend we'll talk about the Holy Spirit, but we're looking at four here this morning. Here's the first one, it's, it's hope. It's based on verses 1 through 3 of our text. Let's take a look at verses 1 through 3, chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Okay, how do we deal with that? He answers the question for us. Believe in God, believe also in me. So the key to dealing with a troubled heart is believing in God, putting your faith in Him. So what should we believe about God. Well, he's going to go on and explain right here. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. He's talking about the hope of heaven, but I think he's wanting them to understand something about hope. Now, Biblically speaking, hope is different from how we use the word hope. In our culture, we use the, the word hope like this. I hope so. I hope that happens. It's wishful thinking. That's not how the Bible defines hope. It's not wishful thinking. It's not I hope so, but it's I know so. See, hope in the Bible is confident, joyful expectation. That no matter what you're going through, you know that God is bigger and he's better, and he's stronger, and he loves you like crazy, and he's going to take whatever bad you're going through, and he's going to work it for your good, all for his glory. You just know that. So there's almost this confident, joyful expectation. See, that's hope. It's like, God, it looks like a mess right now, but I know you're in control, and you love me like no one else loves me, and you're all powerful, and so God, my life is in your hands. See, that's how he wants them to live. And he's giving them a little bit of a, a slice of heaven. In fact, what's the worst thing that could ever happen to us in life? We could die. No, that's the best thing. If you're a believer, that's what he's saying. So what's the worst thing? Ah, you guys will die. Oh, by the way, I'm, I'm preparing a place for you. You will be with me for all eternity. Celebration. Game. Woohoo! That's what he's wanting them to understand. So regardless of how bad it gets, I'm with you. I love you. I'm going to work it for my good. And ultimately, if you do die, you're coming up here with me for all eternity. Celebrate. So there's that sense of confident, joyful expectation that we should have. And, and so we should live with that in our lives, particularly, you know, and generally, but also particularly as it relates to heaven. That's where we're headed so it should fill you with hope. But I, I base this idea of having this general sense of hope on Jeremiah 29, 11. You guys familiar with that? <laughs> How many have memorized 29, 11? It's a good memory verse. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Oh, by the way, you know who he's writing that to? People who are exiled out of their homeland. It'd be like a foreign country coming in here, conquering us, and dragging us off in, into their homeland. So they're exiles, 
And even in the midst of being exiles, he's saying, listen, I got plans for you. I'm still in control. I still love you. I'm still working things out for your good. But two verses down from 29.11, verse 13 of 29, chapter 29 of Jeremiah, he says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Keep your heart towards me. Keep looking to me because I'm working. I love you. I'm going to take care of you. So confident, joyful expectation. I don't think I live in the reality of that as much as I should or could. And I'm sure that you probably don't either. And so we desperately need to hear that, the hope of heaven. We need to have a general sense of hope. And uh, let me give you some fill-in-the-blanks here as it relates to heaven because that's what he's talking about here. Heaven is a home filled with love beyond your wildest dreams. That's the hope that he wants them to understand. Look at verse 2a. He says, in my Father's house. Isn't that interesting? He says, in my Father's house. This is the father of the family we have all been adopted into. Later on, he writes in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, he says, How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. I mean, he's just blown away as he's reflecting on that. There's no words that he can even use to describe that. He says, Do you understand? We've been adopted into this family. God is our Father. He loves us. And, oh, by the way, in my Father's house... In my Father's house. That's where you're going to go for all eternity. And so what we could say here is that death is, death is going home and being warmly welcomed with open arms by the Father and the Son with love and laughter. So that, that's, when we think of heaven as believers, that's what we should envision. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Heaven is a home filled with love beyond our wildest dreams. Verse 2, are many rooms. What is that about? So in my father's house are many rooms. Wow, it sounds like a big house. Real big house. In fact, I think more than just being warmly welcomed by God, seeing him face to face, but it is a place where we will be wonderfully welcomed and reunited with redeemed family and friends. Many rooms. And then verse 2C3A, he says twice in these three verses, I go to prepare a place for you. I go to prepare a place for you. My wife and I went on a road trip a few years ago as part of our sabbatical, and we went up and drove up the West Coast. Anybody here ever take the drive up the West Coast all the way up to maybe Washington? Beautiful trip, amazing trip. Stayed at some really nice hotels, ate some really great food and restaurants. Did stay in one kind of bad motel, but it was on the beach. My, li- my wife didn't quite like it, but I loved it. It was still good, but, uh, but it was all good. The trip was great, but about a, a week and a half, and, and, and not only that, we saw some really great scenery on, the, on that beach, on that coastline. It's just absolutely beautiful. In fact, we stayed in one hotel that was right there on the beach, about six, seven stories high. We were up at the fifth story, could look out over the beach early in the morning. It was just absolutely breathtaking. But after about a week and a half out on the road, we were so happy to get back home. You guys know what I'm talking about? You ever feel like that? To be able to sleep in your own bed and eat home-cooked food? After a while, restaurant food is just like, ay, 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 gag me. I need some home-cooked meal. That's what I need. There's no place like home. No place like home. And that's the idea here. That's the point that he's wanting them to understand. It's the home sweet home you've been looking for your whole life. That's what I'm preparing for you. It's the happily ever after we all long for. That's what he's preparing for us. 
So heaven is a home filled with love beyond our wildest dreams. Here's another thing. Heaven is a person more, much more than it is a place. The place is going to be breathtaking. It's going to be beautiful. But most importantly, it's going to be with, with God. Look at verse 3. I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 3, 13, 12, love chapter, he says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then... Notice says, face to face, face to face with God. Imagine that. Your last breath on earth, your first breath in heaven, face to face with God. That's amazing. But then face to face, now I know in part, then I will, shall know fully even as I'm fully known. You may think you want a thousand different things, but God is the one you really long for. His presence brings satisfaction. His absence brings, brings an inconsolable longing. Our longing for heaven is a longing for God. Every other heavenly pleasure will come from and be secondary to His presence. To see God's face is the greatest of all aspirations, and it will give you a fullness of joy that nothing else can even come close. That's why I like that song that we sang, uh, Psalm 16, one of my favorite songs, In His Presence is Fullness of Joy. And he's certainly talking about heaven, but he's also talking about how we can have a slice of heaven on earth in His presence. Do you know his presence like that, where there's times in your life where it just overwhelms you with his joy, fullness of joy in his presence, his fullness of joy? I, he's, that's what he's describing here. Heaven is a person much more than it is a place. Now, I thought about this, and I thought, so what does that mean if I was really living in the reality of this hope of heaven? What would that look like? Because 1 John chapter 3, remember I quoted that at the beginning of this where he says, how great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. That is what we are. And he continues on. He talks about we don't know what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Talks about the, 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 how we will be infinitely and eternally greater than what we are now and just talks about all that. But he says if we have that hope, he says we're going to live a little bit differently. We're going to live a holy life. We're going to live a life of sanctification. Now, by the way, holiness isn't boring, okay? Actually, holiness is being so happy in Christ that sin loses its appeal. It's living for, it's a life sold out for the glory of God, living for His glory. And we all know that that's what ultimately satisfies the deepest longing of our soul, is to live for His glory. And so it says, really that you're going to live a different kind of life. If you believe that, if you understand the hope of heaven and the general hope of the fact that he can take bad circumstances and work them for your good, you're going to live a holy life, wholly devoted to him. In fact, I wrote this down. If you really believe in heaven, you would be incredibly generous, live a holy, fearless, and joyful life, and not be afraid of death. Here's what's interesting about that truth is that you can know, know the truth of heaven and not have it spiritually real to you. You can have a concept of heaven but not a sense of the glory of heaven. So you can say, oh yeah, I'm going to heaven when I die and, I'll, and, and not even have any kind of an impact on your life currently right now. 
Do you have a sense of the glory of heaven? That's what transforms your life. And by the way, the way you make that truth that's clear to the mind, real to the heart, it's actually a work of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that next week. The Holy Spirit begins to light it up in our heart. We have an experience in our heart of that. So heaven is a home filled with love beyond your wildest dreams. Heaven is a person much more than it is a place. Here's the next one. The path to heaven is through hell, but not for you. 2C3A of our text, I go to prepare a place for you, says that twice. So part of that preparation is Jesus going to the cross for us, and that takes us to the next point, next gift that he gives us is salvation. We have hope because of our salvation. Be strong and courageous in hope and in salvation, verses 4 through 6. And you know the way where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? (laughs) I love that. Notice who's quiet. Peter. Remember? Remember we talked about Peter? Unfiltered Peter? He's the dude that's always talking, but he's quiet. I think he felt a little beat down after the Savior just said, hey, by the way, you want to live, lay down your life for me? You're going to deny me three times. He's like, what? And maybe he was kind of taking a back row and, and said to Tom, Thomas, why don't you, why don't you ask him this question? <laughs> so, okay. Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? <laughs> and Jesus said to him, This is a great memory verse, by the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Salvation is relational. That's your next fill in the blank there. I am the way. Notice he says, I'm not here to show you the way or point in the direction of the way. I am the way. The way is not a path. It's a person. It's not what you do. It's what has been done for you. This is what separates Christianity from every other major cult and religion of our world today. If you've ever taken a course in world religions, I've had people say that, and and they've said to me, well, Christianity is like all the other religions. Well, it isn't. Obviously, you missed uh, some vital points in the uh, differences between Christianity and every other major cult and religion of our world today. Every other religion, it tells you what you must do to be right with God. You could call it good advice, although I don't think it's very good advice because it doesn't actually help you to really know God and get you to heaven. But we could call it good advice at what you must do to be right with God. See, the gospel, Christianity, gives us good news about what Christ has done to make us right with God. It's not what you do, it's what has been done for you. Jesus is the way, it's a relationship with Him. You give your life to Him. Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's only through Jesus. Jesus didn't say, I am a way, I am the way. He's the only way. And he also refers to himself as the truth and life. That's your next couple fill in the blanks. Verse 6, so I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way to the Father. I am the truth about the Father. I'm the very life of the Father. We could say that, but it's even more than all of that. That is important. But truth, truth has to do with really answering life's most important questions like, 
where did we come from? That would be the question of origin, and, and why are we here? Why are we on this planet? That's the question of purpose. And then where are we going when we die? That would be the question of destiny. Jesus came to answer all of those questions. That is the truth. And so in the purpose question, so what does that mean? Why are we here? You were created by God for God to give glory to God. Nothing will bring greater satisfaction than for you to live your life for God's glory. It will give you meaning, hope, and happiness that nothing else on this, in this world can give you. In fact, it's interesting. He uses the word life here. The word life is not bios in the Greek. It's actually zoe. It speaks of a quality of life. It's talking about meaning, hope, and happiness through Christ Jesus. See, what Christ offers us is infinitely and eternally better than the empty promises of sin. The empty promises of sin are limited and temporal, but what he's saying, hey, I'm giving you, I'm here to give you truth and life, meaning, hope, and happiness unlike you've ever experienced before. Listen to me. There's nothing on this planet that can give you the meaning, hope, and happiness that only Christ can give you. If you think otherwise, you're being duped. You're being deceived. And you're, quite frankly, you're delusional because the more you understand what he offers you, this is, this is it. That's why he's saying this is pretty profound. This is pretty significant. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In fact, John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus said that if you abide in my word, now abiding in his word is more than just robotically reading his word in the morning. It's actually interacting with him. If you abide in my word, if you make your home in my word, if you, you're living in the reality of interaction with me, knowing me, getting to know me, letting me speak to your heart, you speaking to me, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will do what? Set you free, give you a freedom that you cannot find anyplace else. There is a freedom in Christ. There is a life in Christ. There is a quality of life that can be found in him you can't find any place else. When I talk about quality, I'm not talking about stuff. You can have all the stuff in the world and not be living a really quality life, spiritually, emotionally, relationally. And that's what he offers us. There is a greater life and freedom than only Christ can give us. And then, he, and then here's the, the third thing under salvation. It is exclusive and inclusive. So this salvation is exclusive and inclusive. He says, no one comes to the Father but by me. You Christians are so narrow-minded. No, no, really. I've been thinking about that, and I'm just thinking, man, you guys are so arrogant. You're so full of yourself. You just think your way is the only way. I've had people actually respond like that to me. I just wanted to share that with you, okay? <laughs> How'd that feel? It's like, well, it's not me saying it. And typically how I respond is like, well, I, I'm not the one that actually came up with that. So don't tag it on me, man. I'm just telling you what my Savior said. You got that? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, I'm pointing to him. Take it up with him. Don't take it up with me. But this is what he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You think you can have a relationship with God apart from Jesus? I hear people say stuff like that all the time. Like, like all roads lead to God. Uh, no, they don't. Actually, only one. That's Jesus. He's, he's the one. He said it. And I believe he's God in the flesh. I believe he resurrected from the grave. 
I believe He is who He said He is and did what He came to do. That's faith. That's truth. That's life. That's, that's so important for us to understand that. And so, yeah, Christianity is very inclusive or exclusive, but, but here's what you need to know. Every, every major religion makes exclusive truth claims. Everyone. In fact, everybody walking this planet makes exclusive truth claims. If you ask them enough, kind of walk it out to the furthest implication, you'll find, oh, that's an exclusive truth claim. Because not everybody's so open-minded they let their brains fall out. Everybody has some sort of standard, some standard that they're living by. And so there's an exclusivity to everyone's standards and beliefs in some form or fashion. But here's what you need to understand. The Christianity is the most inclusive, exclusive truth claim on the planet. And what I mean by that is not only did he say that, that Jesus said, hey, I'm the only way to the Father, but it's available to everyone. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you hear how, how inclusive that is? Now, once again, this is what separates Christianity from every other major religion because they're giving you a list of dues and if you don't hit the dues just right you're you're out got to hit the list got to hit the list if you hit the list you're in good or in bad or out you're bad if you don't hit the list good or in bad or out so so what about christianity it's not the good or in the bad or out because look at all of us we're kind of a mess we don't have it that together, do we? That we could earn right standing with God? No way. I've hung out with you. I know. Okay. No, no, no. With Christianity, the humble are in. The proud are out. You've heard this many times. All you need is need. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You call upon the name of the Lord, you can experience the salvation He offers us. You can have a relationship with God. You can know you're going to heaven because it's not what you do, it's what has been done for you. It's based on His performance, His record. I don't think we live in the reality of that. The more we live in the reality of that, I'm telling you, it's going to change your life. You're going to live a different way. It's going to make a difference. And that's what he's wanting us to understand here. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So salvation is relational. It is truth and life. It is exclusive and very inclusive. Be strong and courageous in hope. Salvation and salvation gives us, here's the next one, knowing God. Here's the next gift. We can know God through our salvation. Now let me read these verses 7 through 11 and see if you can uh, see how often he uses the word know or known and how often he uses the word seen in here, see or seen. He says, if you have known me, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Okay, it's Philip's turn. <laughs> so it goes from Peter you know, unfiltered Peter, talking too much. It's almost like, like I said, he kind of pushed Thomas out there and said, Thomas, you say something. Thomas kind of got, got a little bit of the beat down here, a little bit. It's like, hey, come on. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You guys know that. And so now it's almost like uh, Thomas is saying, hey, Philip, why don't you ask him? So Philip's, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Now, I, I know that all of us have had that uh, desire from time to time. And I've actually talked to people before and says, well, if there is a God, I just wish he would show himself to me. 
you don't want that. I mean, you don't. Have you ever seen roadkill? That sounds gross, but I'm telling you, it says no one can see me and live. That's worse than roadkill. That's bad. That's Exodus 33. The Bible makes it very clear. No, fortunately, God showed us himself through his son Jesus being on this planet, revealing himself to us. God is so far beyond us, it would torch us. He's holy. We're sinful. That's a fact. The only way that we will be able to approach him is through Jesus Christ and his finished work. And that's what he's saying. So Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long that you still do not know me? I mean, three years worth. Front row seat. He says, Philip, come on. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Now we're getting glimpses into the Trinity, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One in essence, three in person. And we'll see the, the third person of the Trinity this next week when we study the work of the Holy Spirit. So we're seeing all of this happening as he's talking to his disciples. He says, verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on, the, on account of the works themselves. So knowing God, here's your next uh, thought on your notes. You've heard this many times. You can know a lot about God, but not know God. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? So here's what he's saying to us. You can go to church, you can read your Bible, you can attend a life group, you can serve in the church, you can give money faithfully and not know God. Think about that for a minute. You can even sit on the front row week in and week out. These guys won't be sitting on the front row next week. Okay, you guys all look good. Okay, you guys are cool. It's the second row back right there, right there. Second row, second row. Actually, you can sit on the front row every week and still not know God. You can sit on the back row and not know God. It's the people that are between the front and back row. They're the ones that know God. Okay, you can sit anywhere in here and not know God and come in here week in and week out. I know guys that have some pretty high theological degrees, really smart dudes, and I'm not really sure if they know God because they're full of themselves. They're arrogant. There's no humility. There's no deep, deep affection for Jesus and love for others. I'm not against studying. I study like crazy, but I'm telling you, your study, if it doesn't humble you, and you're not experiencing God through that, then you're missing it. You're missing it. So that's important. I mean, that's just, you, can, you can know a lot about God and not know God. In fact, there's some pretty scary words by our Savior, frightening words, found in the, at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus. Greatest sermon ever preached by Jesus. The very last words 
I'll paraphrase it. He just basically says, hey, you can, you can claim to know Christ. You can claim to know me. You can have right doctrine, be passionate, even help people to change and still not know Christ. In fact, he says, they will come and stand before me and I'll say to them, I don't know you. So you can have all of that and still not know God. John 17, 3, it says, for this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There is no eternal life without knowing God. So what is this knowing God? Well, it's the next point in your notes. To know God is a hard experience based on the objective truth about God. So the objective truth is God's Word. Obviously, we need to know God's Word. And then it's more than just knowing His Word. It's, it's really that hard experience. Now, four times he uses the word known or know four times, and then he uses the word seen three times, and he's almost using those interchangeably, the writer here, John. So John is invoking sensory language to help us to understand this idea of knowing. Knowing is seeing, seeing is knowing God. Psalm 34, 8, using sensory language, he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. So it's got to go beyond the intellect. And the information part, it's got to go from your head down into your heart as an experience. Now, this road trip that my wife and I went to, went on, on up the West Coast a few years ago, one of the things that my wife wanted to stop in Northern California was at the Redwoods. Anybody ever go to the Redwoods, Northern California? Yep. Yep, yep. And so she, she tell, told me about this, that her and her family, when she was a young little girl, they went to the Redwoods, and she would brag about it and go, oh, the Redwoods, oh, my goodness. You haven't seen a forest until you've seen the Redwoods. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, right, right. We got the Ponderosa Pines in Flagstaff, okay? <laughs> I can drive two hours. I'm not driving 20 hours to see a big Redwood tree when I can just go up to Flagstaff and see some Ponderosa Pines. And she goes, no, you don't get it. I say, no, no, I got it. I think I got it. I think I got it. And so we, we pulled in there, and we began to hike back into the redwoods. And I was like, like a kid, like going like this. Wow. And she goes, I told you, I told you. Wow. This is crazy. This is unbelievable. The redwoods. She was right. And she made it very clear that she was right. <laughs> that was hurtful. I'll have you know, I tried to tell you, you lug nut. She didn't say that. I was thinking that. I was like, hey, I wasn't listening. You know, it's interesting, the redwoods, northern California, they reach heights of 300 feet with trunks more than 24 feet across. Those Ponderosa Pines and Flagstaff, those are toothpicks. <laughs> so it's one thing to see a postcard of the Redwoods, but it's altogether another thing to experience the Redwoods yourself. And you can even have someone tell you about the Redwoods. Oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. Not until you have an experience of the Redwoods. Once you've had a personal sensory experience of the Redwoods, you realize that the words that you had before cannot convey the actual sensory experience that seeing the Redwoods brings. See, it is one thing to have a postcard perspective of God. I think a lot of Christians have a postcard perspective of God. They've been told, oh man, you gotta experience God. Okay, okay, yeah, I got it, I got it. No, you don't. 
No, you don't. It's one thing to have a postcard perspective of God, but it's altogether another thing to experience His indescribable greatness and unimaginable goodness. Let me give you another analogy here, kind of a case study. This can be applied to any of us, all of us. Two men who were applying for the same job or the same promotion, or it could be two women engaged, get dumped by their uh, future spouse, or any number of situations that could happen. So we'll just say two men who were applying for the same job. Both men are Christians who go to church, believe God loves them. Neither one of them gets the job. One man is sad, but he gets over it. He's consolable. The other man is in despair, becomes bitter, never gets over it. He's inconsolable. What's the difference? To one man, God's love was an abstraction. He knew about God's love, but hadn't experienced God's love. To the other man, God's love was a reality. He knew about God's love, but also had experienced God's love. To one man, the job rejection was more real than the love of God. To the other man, God's love was more real than the job rejection. You can know a lot about God and not really know Him. My prayer for us is that we would know God, that we would experience Him. And you'll have to come back next week because we're going to talk about really how the Holy Spirit begins to, the promised Holy Spirit. We'll spend a couple weeks on that here in the future, about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit lighting up God's Word in our heart, helping us to really know and experience Him. So, so how can we know God? Well, primarily through His Word. You can know the Bible without knowing God, but you can't know God without knowing the Bible. That's why we study God's Word. We love God's Word because, man, it helps us to see the one we love and adore and want so badly to get a glimpse of Him week in and week out as we study His Word because only He can satisfy the deepest longing of our souls. So be strong and courageous in hope, salvation, knowing God. And so not only through the study of God's Word, but also through prayer. He's given us the gift of prayer that we can know God. That's your next one on your notes, prayer. Let's, uh, we'll read the rest of our text, verses 12 through 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. In greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. That had to have been just very profound. And when you think about all the works that Jesus did, you're like, wow, that's amazing. Whatever you do, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That sounds like a blank check. I'm writing the big one. Yeah. Hey, don't run into that too quickly because you need to really study what he's saying here. But there are people that would teach that. Blank check. Yeah, just ask him for anything. Name it. Claim it. Woohoo! If you didn't get it because you got sin in your life and you just don't have faith, well, thank you very much. That helps. And that's actually what's being taught in some circles. 
But it's not based on us, once again. It's based on who Christ is and what he's done for us, and there's much more. This is not a blank check. Now, last weekend we talked about, remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He tells his disciples, he says, you guys need to pray because you're going to head into some temptation. So you need to be strong in that temptation. So you guys need to pray. And so he goes into the garden, begins to pray, comes back and finds them doing what? Sleeping. Why? Because prayer is boring to them because they are out of touch. They are out of touch with their own vulnerability to sin and they have no clue about what awaits them, the firestorm that's ahead of them. And I know for me, as I was thinking about that, uh, how many remember me saying that last, last weekend? Okay, not very many of you. That's awfully frightening. I'm not going to re-preach it. You need to go online and listen to it. But, but it should have been somewhat convicting for us because if you're not praying consistently, regularly, you're not wanting to connect with the Father, it's because you have a wrong concept of prayer and you're out of touch with just your own capacity to sin and the danger that awaits you. He promised us you're going to have trouble but you don't need to be troubled, but if we're not utilizing this gift, this is one of the gifts that he's giving us, prayer, then we're going to be taken down. We're going to be taken out. But it's, it's more than that, not just the capacity to sin within us and the danger that awaits us, but then you don't know God if you don't want to pray, if you're, not, if you're not wanting to spend time with him because there's nothing boring about God. And so, so if you're struggling, I'm not here to beat you up about this. Really, the issue is that, man, get to know Him. Do you understand what awaits you? You can connect with God, the living God, through prayer. This is, this is what He gives us. This is a gift. We can connect with Him. We can know Him. We can experience Him. That's amazing. That should stir your heart to want to pray. Yes. Unless you're just going robotically through your devotions. Prayer is just another thing you check off the list. Don't let it be that. And spend time with him. I spent time with the Lord this morning, every morning. Man, it was rich. It was good. It was sweet. And, and so that's, that's an important part. And he gives us in this the precondition, the power, and the purpose of prayer. I mean, when I approach prayer, I'm, I'm reminded once again of Psalm 1611. That's what I'm seeking. I want to experience that fullness of joy. In his presence, fullness of joy. I'm wanting to experience Psalm 63.3. His steadfast love is better than, better than life. There's, his love is better than any love that you could ever find on this planet. That's what I want. That's what I want to experience. That's why I, I seek him. I, I pursue him. Now, here's the precondition, verse 12. Whoever believes in me. So you've got to believe in him. John 1.12, it says, To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So it's a right of a child of God to pray, to talk to him. Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name. Notice he says in his name, not in your own name. And so it's based on his character. He's a dad who loves us and cares for us. And so we don't come in our name, we come in his name is based on Jesus' performance and record, not ours. And we've got to understand, too, we've got to see what it cost God to open the door of prayer for us. It was the cross. So that's important. That's why prayer uh, should be very significant to us. But in Luke 11, verses 9 through 13, I don't know if you remember this, if you've read this, is that the disciples were watching Jesus connect with the Father, and they're going, oh my goodness, we want to be able to connect with the Father like you. Jesus, you have a really an intimate relationship with God. 
And so he teaches them how to pray, and he takes them through the Lord's Prayer. At the end of the Lord's Prayer, he says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. Literally, in the Greek, it means ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. In other words, your Father in heaven wants to give you good things, but keep being persistent in prayer. Be diligent in prayer. Keep looking to Him. Keep interacting with Him. And then he goes on and he says that, that there's no father, if a son would ask for a fish, would give him a serpent. And if, if the son or daughter would ask for an egg, would give him a scorpion. Because that would be outside of the character of that father. And your father in heaven, he's not going to give you a scorpion. You're asking for, and a lot of times we're asking for scorpions. We're asking for serpents, things that could take us down. And he's just saying, that's outside his character. You ask in his name, it's based on his character. He loves you. He's not going to do those things. He's only going to do what's in your best interest. And he loves you. And so it's quite fascinating. Then he goes on, he says, if you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, he says, how much more does your Father in heaven want to give good gifts to those who who love him? Listen to me, there's no parent on earth that wants the very best for their children or grandchildren, wants the very best for their children, like your Father in heaven wants the best for you. Did you hear that? You have a Father in heaven that wants the very best for you. He always has your best interest at heart. That's how you approach prayer. He loves giving good gifts to us, but he's not going to give us scorpions, and he's not going to give us serpents, and that's important for us to to keep in mind. So as a child of God, God will give to you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knew. Your Father in heaven always wants what is best for you. That's the precondition. Here's the power. Verse 12, we'll do the works that I do in greater works. Wow, that's amazing. Well, Jesus could only be in one place at one time. This is multiplication of every believer with the Holy Spirit going into the whole world, preaching the gospel, laying hands on the sick, seeing some phenomenal things happen. That's the multiplication he's talking about that will happen when he goes to the Father, sends the Holy Spirit, and the church is lit up and goes throughout the world with the gospel message. That's what he's talking about. And then in verse... uh, Verse 13, whatever you ask, I will do. Now, here's what's phenomenal, and this is what gets me on my knees every morning. He says in uh, James, James says, Jesus' brother, half-brother, James writes in 4.2, chapter 4, verse 2, we have not because we what? Because we ask not. You go without because you're not asking. That's what he's saying. And then he goes on later in that that same letter, that book, James 5.16, he says this. He says, uh, the prayers of a righteous man are powerful and effective. Notice it's only towards men in that. And uh, just want to make that clear. So you're going to, okay, it's for everyone. But think about this. So this is what he's saying. This is what's important to understand. Prayer makes things happen that otherwise wouldn't happen if we didn't pray. Do you hear that? That's why I'm on my knees every day. Is I want things to happen in my life, my kids' lives, in this church's life. I want things to happen in this city. I pray for the churches in the valley. I pray for our city, our state, our nation politically. I pray for it spiritually because I want things to happen. 
Prayer makes things happen that otherwise wouldn't happen if we don't pray. That's what he's saying here. So we can make things happen in people's lives. And I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen in my life. I've seen it happen in the people's lives here at Desert Breeze. Oh my goodness, we went through crazy times this last year. And I'm seeing God working as a result of our prayers, as a result of what he's doing. Praise God. Praise God. He loves us. No one loves us like him. And then the purpose of prayer. This is important. Oh, I'm going long here today, this morning, sorry. I don't need to apologize though, do I? Okay. You're the last service, so you're getting both barrels. So here we go. The purpose. James, uh, actually the purpose is in verse 13. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. That's the purpose of prayer. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. So James 4.3 says, You ask but do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So the purpose of prayer is that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Not that we would be glorified. It's so that the Father would be glorified. So what is the purpose of prayer? Here, let me give you two options. Is it to satisfy our desires immediately with temporal things? No. Or is it to satisfy our desires ultimately with eternal things? Yes. So here's how we should approach prayer. We must believe that all the health and wealth and human acclaim and success and money and romance and achievements in this world that we find desirable will not bring us the lasting satisfaction our hearts long for. Now, God loves to give us those things, but if they're serpents and and scorpions, He's not going to give those things to us. He's not going to do that. He's he's not going to wreck our life. He loves us. But we've got to also know that none of that will satisfy us like He will. The honor, love, satisfaction you are looking for can only be found in the arms and love of God. See, once again, you were made by God for God to give glory to God. You were made for God and your heart and soul will be forever restless until you find your rest in Him. Now listen to me. All the gifts that He could ever give to you can never come close to knowing Him and experiencing Him. Do you understand that? Having Him in your life is better than any gift you could ever get from Him and experiencing Him. And and listen, He will sacrifice your temporal for the sake of your eternal. And I am so thankful that He would do that. He will love me so much that He will not give me things that He knows that will ultimately be destructive only so that He can give me something better. And that's Him, Himself. That's important. So, you can pray like this, God, I want to marry this person or land this job or buy, buy this home or have these kids or etc. You can add to that because it will make me happy. That's not probably a good way to, uh, to pray. Or you can say, God, I want to marry this person, land this job, buy this home, have these kids, etc. because it will help me to become the person you want me to be and to better know you and to live for your glory. That would be even better. We are like an eight-year-old boy who is crying because his truck broke. And someone comes walking in and says that a distant relative has just died and left you $100 million. And the little boy is going to keep crying because he is out of touch with the true value of things. And so God comes to us and says, I forgive you, I adopt you, I lavish you with my love upon you, I empower you with my 
my presence, my Holy Spirit. I guarantee a place with me for all eternity. And we cry because our truck is broken. I didn't get the job or the promotion or the date or whatever it might be. And little do we realize what we have in Him is better by far. Knowing Him, experiencing Him. So here's what he's saying to us this morning. Let not your hearts be troubled. You're going to face troubled times. Let not your hearts be troubled. I'm giving you hope. I'm giving you salvation. I'm giving you the the amazing privilege of not just knowing about me, but truly knowing me. And you can do that through prayer. And all those gifts are given to you for the quest that I've sent you on to make much of me, to live for my glory. Next weekend, we'll talk about the, the fifth gift, the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit works with all of these gifts. And the promised Holy Spirit is the title of next weekend's message, John chapter 14, verses 15 through 30. We'll look at the rest of the chapter. I'll be up front at the end of the service along with any available elders. And if you are new, I'd love to meet you. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. If you have any questions, we'd like to answer those questions for you. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? So, Father God, thank you that we don't need to be troubled by all the troubles in our life and around our lives. Help us to live a life filled with hope, not wishful thinking, but confident, joyful expectation of what you have in store for us. And we can have this hope because of the great salvation that, has, that was accomplished at, at a great cost by our Savior Jesus. And our great salvation gives us the privilege of not just knowing about you, but truly experiencing you in our lives And we can do that not only through your word, but also through the gift of prayer. Thank you for these gifts and many more that sustain us, strengthen us, and satisfy us in all circumstances like nothing else. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Love you guys. God bless you.